AT&T ThreatTrack is a roundtable discussion of the latest network security trends and news conducted by AT&T data security analysts. Complete video of this show is available at techchannel.att.com. Hello, welcome to AT&T ThreatTrack for July 14th, 2015. This program provides network security highlights, discussion, and countermeasures for cyber threats. Today we're joined by Jim Clausing online. Welcome, Jim. Hi, good to be here. <laughs> Matt Kaiser. How's it going, Brian? Welcome, Matt. And John Hogeboom. Yep, I'm here. <laughs> I'm Brian Drexrode. And uh, first online here, you know, Jim, in the last episode we recorded, we talked a little bit about the, uh, I guess, the looming yet another uh, vulnerability associated with OpenSSL, and you know, perhaps we'll have an alternative. Yeah, uh, this one was first reported in a in a blog by Amazon. Uh, they are in the process of releasing an open source library that they're calling S to N, which stands for Signal to Noise. It's a TLS library. It is fairly small and doesn't do everything that OpenSSL does, but mm -hmm. it looks like it could potentially be an alternative to, to using the OpenSSL libraries for places where you want to implement TLS. Their, you know, their, their blog post when they announced it, they pointed out the OpenSSL itself is about a half million lines of code now where this S2N library will only be about 6,000 lines. Wow. But as I said, it doesn't do everything that OpenSSL does. Mm -hmm. um, basically, there are two, two different components of OpenSSL. One is their libSSL, which is the part that implements TLS and is used for, for things to link into web servers and that kind of thing. And the other piece is libCrypto, which is a more general purpose crypto library. Um, S2N doesn't attempt to do any of the lib crypto kinds of stuff. It's only concentrated on doing the, the TLS stuff. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't implement uh, SSL as far as I can tell, since basically we've had so many issues that we've been telling people to move off of SSL onto TLS. So my understanding is that S2N uh, will only be implementing uh, TLS. So I, I, I think this is a good thing, you know, having an alternative, uh, having another open source implementation. We'll see as it starts rolling out. I have not yet seen the code or uh, tried to see how difficult it would be to, to implement, you know, to drop in in place of OpenSSL in various places. Mm -hmm. but, uh, I, I think this is a good development, so I'm looking forward to it. Yeah. You know, on a positive note, it appears to be significantly less complex. And that's obviously a good thing. But uh, I guess to, uh, on a sort of counterpoint, you know, oftentimes in a new implementation like this, when it first comes out, uh, or somebody takes, uh, you know, a reference implementation and says, you know, you don't need those 15 lines of code, and they take it out. Well, those 15 lines of code were probably put in there to fix some vulnerability or something that, uh, that you know, otherwise had gone unnoticed. And so that's, I think the, uh, I think this is gonna have to go through some 
some uh, I'll say growing pains. Life cycle. So, yeah. it, and it'll be interesting to see how things come out once it starts to get some scrutiny. I'm sure it's not going to grow to a half a million lines of code from six thousand because it is certainly simpler and that's a good thing from a security standpoint uh, from a usability standpoint most likely as well but uh, I suspect it's going to grow from that to, to get things all straightened out oh yeah and and one of the things they do point out in in that blog post is um, that one of the the ways that they've streamlined things is that they simply did not implement some of the rarely used options and right. extensions mm -hmm. one of the things with TLS is there are a lot of optional extensions. And so one of the choices that the folks at Amazon made in, in implementing S2N is the options and extensions that hardly anybody uses, they didn't bother to implement. Mm -hmm. So it will not be 100% compatible with folks who are expecting some of these optional uh, pieces to be there. Yep. But if you're not expecting those or you're not uh, requiring those rather, then this should be a, an, a, an interesting alternative to look at. But you're right, it, there will be there will clearly be some growing pains mm -hmm. in this one, just like any other piece of software. Yep. And Amazon in the blog post stated that they've actually gone through a cycle of testing for it already. So it's yeah. not like they've you know, created this thing and are just thrown it over the fence. It sounds mm -hmm. like they, they've both tested it for security flaws and it sounds like they're committing to further testing in the future, which is a good good thing to see. Yep, sounds good. Right, yeah. right. They, they, they claim that they've already had some external evaluations and pen tests against it um, before they, you know, before they ever get to the point of releasing it to the public. So, yeah. Yep, sounds good. Although, uh, you know, any cryptographic implementation can be, have little subtle things go wrong. So, mm -hmm. so next item here, Matt, the um, uh, anonymizing systems and, you know, I guess there are all kinds of little tricks that we could play. So we've got another trick up our sleeve now, huh? <laughs> yeah, this one is pretty neat. Um, so there's a researcher, Adam Caudill. Uh, he's, he's let it be known that he plans on releasing something at DEF CON. Reminder, DEF CON's coming up, mm -hmm. which is, you know, like a second security Christmas. We had security Christmas last week when all the hacking team stuff showed up and everyone was just like, wow, this is how, <laughs> you know, this is how the, the, the big leaguers operate. But this is DEF CON's second security Christmas of the year. He's, he's got plans for a system that he's calling ProxyHam. And the idea behind it is if you want to place yourself physically distant from the IP address you're using mm -hmm. to do whatever it is you don't want others to know. It's, this is an anonymity tool. It's a system that piggybacks a regular TCP IP connection over the 900 megahertz spectrum, which is a spectrum that's shared by a lot of different devices, uh, cordless mm -hmm. telephones, mm -hmm. not cellular, cordless, the ones that you, know, you plug in a base station at home and walk around the house, right. um, baby monitors, a number of other devices use this sort of freely available spectrum. This device allows you to connect over 900 megahertz uh, frequencies to a base station that you've co-located near some other access point mm -hmm. up to 2.5 miles away um, and then that device connects to the access point on your behalf and you've just tunneled your whole connection through this very long distance wireless connection. It makes it much harder to physically locate you to mm -hmm. the MAC address that you're using to connect to the access point. Um, so the implementation seems to be using a very nice 900 megahertz antenna hardwired to your laptop Mm -hmm. And on the other end, uh, a hardware device that receives the 900 and turns it to Wi-Fi, it's based on a Raspberry Pi. Uh, he's, he says he's, he might be selling these things at DEF CON at cost, which is exciting. It's still going to be around $200. Mm -hmm. um, 
I think this is an exciting idea. I mean, people have been using sort of distance antennas to keep themselves away from access points, usually like the, the directional or can antennas mm -hmm. uh, for a while now. But this, this is sort of like upping the game entirely. The difference is that you need to have that hardware device that, that does the transformation from 900 to Wi-Fi for you. And you have to leave that somewhere distant from yourself with a power right. source and some sort of you know, belief that it's not going to get tampered with. Mm -hmm. Because if somebody wants to trace you down, they'll find this device and then they may be able to log into it and find out details of, of you know, mm -hmm. your connection, potentially. So in a power strip. Plug it in so. Like the the, <laughs> the the phone plug, maybe. Right. This one just looks like a box with a whole bunch of antennas at this point. Uh, that's so true. I guess you'd shady. have the antennas, right? Right. Okay. The idea is to leave it at maybe near a coffee shop or a, a library or something like that. Apparently, there's plans in the future to put in some sort of anti-tamper feature that if someone cracks the case or does something to it, it wipes the the contents of the uh, the Raspberry Pi SD card, mm -hmm. um, and then maybe like a black box. If something happens, report back. This is the changes that were made. Sort of yeah. idea. I guess I, I would recommend exercising caution about where to put a device like this, partly because you know you don't yeah. want to be that suspicious package. Oh yeah, <laughs> if you see something, say something. Yeah, that's a bad idea. Well, that's the, that's the thing though. Like either, I think the the hardest part of it is not going to get the technical side set up. It's going to be finding a way to to put this in a, a public or private space that it can mm -hmm. still you know contact a, an access point that you have access right. rights and to not, use and not create other problems. Right, right. And what sorts of bandwidth does he get over that 900 megahertz? No, that's a very good question. I know that he's real slow. Yeah, probably not great. The 900 megahertz, just to be clear, is not the current wireless, you know, cordless phones. It's the first generation cordless phones were in the 900 megahertz range. Second, the new ones are all 2.4 gig or 5 gig. So this is old and. My guess is the bandwidth will not be real great. Enough to shovel a shell over, hopefully. Right. And the opportunity for interference is probably pretty high as well. Yeah, mm -hmm. absolutely. That's so, true. It's a busy band. But neat, neat idea, nevertheless. So let's talk about our top five. And this week's top five is uh, protecting infrastructure. Now, the context here is basically running some type of an enterprise and you have some IT infrastructure you need to protect. And so, uh, you know, I'm a little bit biased here, but tendency would be to think about, you know, system administration and how to protect that infrastructure uh, from a security standpoint. So let's go to you, Jim, first. And uh, what do you think we should be doing here? Yeah, my, my first tip is implement least privilege. Mm -hmm. That is, don't give everybody access to everything. Only give them access what they need to do their job. You know, that, that means, you know, don't give, you know, me, uh, administrator, administrative access to the accounting systems kind of thing, you know, and, and partition those off, you know, keep, keep them in their own enclaves. The, the accounting system shouldn't necessarily be able to talk to the you know, HR, I don't know, I'm just making things up here as mm -hmm. I go, but, you know, ba basically, um, Keep the systems that have the the critical data, you know, in their own little enclaves where you can protect them better. Yep, absolutely. You know, as we get more and more into cloud infrastructure, that notion of physically partitioning things becomes less and less. 
And so we, and more and more we get into discussions about APIs and be able to interact between systems, but do it in a way that you've controlled through that API. That is, you can only access things through the means that the API facilitates, and then to have authentication associated with that so you can maintain accountability and controls in that sense. And in terms of granting uh, user accounts, you know, it is more work to manage least privilege. You have to define roles, you have to define who's performing particular roles, and you have to limit it to that. And you know the tendency over time is to creep, uh, have uh, you know sort of, we know the term feature creep, uh, to basically have privilege creep. But uh, it's something that you kind of have to resist or revisit and try to control over time. So, all right, Matt, let's go to you. What uh, what do you think is the next item? For me, it's it's sort of the opposite, in the way it's the reverse of, of what Jim is thinking. Mine's more about a user account termination and audit of existing user accounts. Mm -hmm. So like when, if you do have that sort of privilege creep, first off, for existing accounts, you should really be trying to minimize it, knock it back down, and say mm -hmm. maybe on a monthly or yearly basis, does everybody who has admin access to their box really need it? Does everybody need this extra privilege or need to have this network uh, connectivity established between mm -hmm. business unit A and business unit B? Doing that will help you know, keep a, a, a lid on the sort of problems you were just, you know, just describing. Um, but the other is, is account termination. There are many reasons why you'd want to almost immediately or immediately terminate user accounts mm -hmm. when something goes on, in particular when you have um, a boy being let go. If someone's being let go and the terms are not necessarily, you know, uh, favorable. amicable, <laughs> favorable, um, there's, some people will see that as an excuse to sabotage or steal mm -hmm. data or do other things that they wouldn't be able to, you, they're already leaving the company, what can you possibly do to them is sort of the mindset. Mm -hmm. So including that, you know, sort of tying in HR's decisions to the technical decisions and say, this guy's no longer here, these are the 20, 30, 40 accounts that you need to lock down immediately, having that coordination is critical. Mm -hmm. So uh, I highly recommend having that in place. Yeah. Another key piece of it is, you know, not just when folks leave the company, but when folks have their their job change, That's their responsibilities change. You know, I move from group A to group B. Well, now I don't need admin access over on group A's systems, so those should be shut down. So that's one of the things, you know, your regular audit should be bringing to people's attention so that, you know, when those job roles change, there are old access that they no longer need gets taken away too. So John, what's next on the list? Yeah, so um, grant privileged access only to trusted employees. And then my little caveat in parentheses is don't trust any of your employees. No, just kidding. Um, <laughs> but uh, no, you know, seriously, kind Wait, of. Employees are a lot more transient than they used to be. Well, that's used true. To be, you got hired for a career, you know, that, that was uh, that was where you worked. And it's not like that anymore. So this, I think this is a much more complicated thing than it used to be. It is because like you said, you do, especially if you're a large organization, you've got people coming and going all the time. Um, it's just better to uh, not grant privileges only to those people who absolutely need them and then kind of pivoting back to gyms only to what they actually need to have privilege access to. Mm -hmm. um, so don't give them the keys to the entire kingdom even if you do trust them. Only grant them access to things that they absolutely need. Mm -hmm. uh, but do so only in a very restricted way because there's right. very few people who really need admin to the entire domain or other such you know overreaching types of administrative privileges in your mm -hmm. organization. So. 
really consider that carefully. Um, right. um, and only with people that probably have been around for a while and you trust and, and again, audit what they're doing yeah. to make sure they're not doing anything trust, know, inappropriate. Trust, but verify. Right. Yeah. And then develop that trust. I think, I think that the, the notion of have, having somebody come in and then all of a sudden be the administrator of systems is probably not the best thing right. to do. To work them into that role, develop a trust relationship over time, and then uh, see how that employee's working out would be perhaps a better if you have the opportunity to do that. Right. Certainly. So, and my third and fourth, I kind of lumped together because I segued right into my fourth, but you know, it is, you know, verify these people that you've granted privilege access to that you do some auditing to see what they're doing. Mm -hmm. You should do that on all of your users, really, to see if anybody's up to things that they shouldn't be doing and do that on a mm -hmm. regular basis. I think that segues right into mine here, which is basically monitor and baseline normal. Because right. if you don't know what normal is, there's no way you're going to be able to notice what abnormal is. And uh, I mean, we all here, I think, have experienced this, these cases where uh, all of a sudden somebody starts monitoring network and then they're reporting all kinds of attacks. And it's like, no, that's, that's not an attack. That's your normal behavior, your system. And so you have to really be able to recognize what normal is in order to be able to identify an abuse or an attack. And uh, if you don't have that, those measurements in place, it's, it's just not going to happen. So, yeah, yeah. We've, we've seen situations where someone who had, should have been baselining probably would have caught on to some activity oh. long before the catastrophic failures that they had. You know, example, mm -hmm. if maybe your processor is running, you know, at 50% where it's usually somewhere down at 20, that's great. We would have caught that. But mm -hmm. when it comes to 90 and 100 and your box starts, you know, choking and dying because somebody's <laughs> using it for Bitcoin yeah. mining. You could have caught that a lot earlier. Yeah, or you got a, someone brute certainly. forcing passwords on your SSH server, mm -hmm. and they've been doing it for the past eight months, but you didn't know about it, and then all of a sudden they finally got the password right. You know mm -hmm. what I mean? <laughs> so really watching what people are doing, and then like we said, we see people contact us all the time, say, "Hey, someone from China is trying to brute force into my." machine yeah well they've been doing that for the past six to eight months you just yeah. haven't today you decided to look yeah. you know that's absolutely right so, yeah well to, yeah. to to back up to to john's point four there about verifying um you know basically if anybody is using elevated privileges that what they're doing with it ought to be logged uh, mm -hmm. you know i mean i i can't count the number of times in previous jobs where I had to deal with a critical outage because of some change that you know happened outside of the change uh, approved change management, and nobody knew who did it. When you're using the elevated privileges, you know you you need to understand that all of that should be law is going to be logged so that when you do make changes, that can be matched back against approved change requests and that mm -hmm. kind of thing. Okay, so uh, for the Internet Weather this week, we're going to do a very abbreviated version of it. I just wanted to share with you the Reconnaissance Index. We hadn't talked about this for a little bit of uh, a little while. You know, we are regularly talking about the top 10 most probed ports and the activity associated with the uh, and number of sources doing that probing, uh, also the top 10. But to put things in a general measurement or a relative measurement of that activity uh, is also very helpful over time. The way to think about this is it's kind of like uh, an industrial average or, you know, a, a market index or something, except kind of upside down from that or the inverse of that. Yeah, we'd like it to go down. We like the uh, <laughs> reconnaissance index to generally go down. But it has not really been going down. It actually, you know, I think a couple of years ago, we were tracking a reconnaissance index that was around in the 20s. 
I remember it being in the sub-20s, and then uh, and it has certainly been going up since then. And this is a normalized index, by the way. So the blue band showing the number of sources, basically the contribution relative to number of sources. Curiously, the number of sources is a smaller contribution than it used to be. We, you know, when we uh, originally generated this index, the index was uh, basically an even distribution between sources and probes to uh, contribute to that index. So the number of sources, relatively speaking, has gone down but the number of probes associated with a given source has actually given, not, I mean, in general, has gone up. So we've seen a relative increase in the number of probes compared to the number of sources that are performing that probing. And uh, we also are still seeing a you know, significant number of sources that are doing the probing activity. So rather than really big botnets, we're seeing relatively smaller botnets, uh, perhaps more of them, uh, that are doing uh, the probing activity and doing recruiting activity. And most of this, in terms of the probing activity, sources doing that probing uh, associated with the um, uh, Internet of Things that are not uh, readily prepared or designed to be able to be connected to the Internet directly. As you can see here, uh, we saw a dip in the activity from uh, around the January, February timeframe, went down a little bit, but we seem to be on an upward or an increasing trend over the last uh, couple of months here. So something that we need to keep, uh, keep an eye on. Uh, it appears that, again, the probing activity toward looking for internet of connected things, as well as some other probing activity has been uh, contributing to that. And this is a one year time frame here? It's a relatively one year time frame, a little over a year, 400 days. So okay. about one year and one month that we're showing. That's our show for today. I'd like to thank you for joining us. And if you'd like to get in touch with us, you can email us at attthreattrack at list.att.com. Uh, and you can find the ATT Threat Track program on the ATT Tech Channel. It's on YouTube as well as on iTunes. You can uh, readily search it and uh, we'll be able to it'll find it for you. Uh, you can follow us on Twitter. Our handle is at ATT Security. And uh, I'd like to thank you, Jim. Thanks, John. Thanks, Matt. I'm Brian Rexrode. We'll be back next week with a new episode. And until then, keep your network safe. The views expressed on AT&T ThreatTrack are those of the participants and do not necessarily represent the views of AT&T or any other person or entity.